Hello, and thank you for uh, joining us on what is the first episode of the Coaching Discourse podcast. The podcast is hosted by myself, uh, Derek Reardon, Laurie McDonald, and Dr. Anna Stodder, uh, with our mission being to enable coaches and those who support their development to see the world of sports coaching with a bit more colour. Given the C word, or culture, it has become popularised over the last decade thanks to sporting dynasties and businesses alike being more explicit around the influence of culture on their success. We thought it might be a neat place to start the podcast. So today, discussing and debating leadership and culture in sport and sports coaching, we have three colleagues that were delighted to join us. Guy Richardson of Iger Performance, Elliot Newell of the English Institute of Sport, and Dr. Simon Phelan of Oxford Brookes University. Before we go into the uh, formal introductions, it's probably appropriate to share the format for today. It is uh, unscripted by and large. However, Anna, Laurie and myself possess a question each by way of stimulating a discussion. We may ask uh, and answer all of them or none of them over the course of the recording, but we feel that's okay because it's a conversation uh, and wherever that may go is what counts. Anna will kick us off today, but before she does, I would like to welcome our guests in to introduce themselves, starting with Guido. Um, I was in the British Army for 20 years, um, a local infantry regiment here in Edinburgh, um, and I had a fantastic time. I went to to Santos, Royal Military Academy Santos, became an officer. And the key thing about going to Santos is this, you come out with a toolkit uh, of uh, good and bad of how to become a leader. It's what you subsequently do with that toolkit is essential uh, and fitting the right situation uh, to what you've learned. That was fantastic. I saw some amazing things, some wonderful things and some terrible things, lost soldiers on operations. but I also saw some great things. I was, highlights probably first Gulf War, um, was in the first Gulf War, uh, went to Northern Ireland uh, and delighted to see the, the back of that and how that's that's prospered. Uh, was one of about four or five tours in Northern Ireland, um, Sierra Leone, Bosnia. So it was quite a quite a quite an interesting time. I came out of that just to spend more time with my family. Um, I then landed a job with Scottish Rugby as the, profes- the first professional team manager of the Scotland Rugby team. I did that for six years, and in essence, that was all about prov- the provision of an optimal environment for success for both the players and the coaches. Key aspect of that was the leadership role and the stakeholder management piece. Really enjoyed that, did that for six years, and wanted to, and saw an opportunity and created the opportunity to join the British and Irish Lions. Uh, and for those of your audience who don't know who they are, that's the best of the best of Scotland, England, Ireland, and Wales taking on the might of Australia, South Africa, and New Zealand rotating around every four years. So you only hit the shores of those Southern Hemisphere places once a generation, once every 12 years. So I was fortunate enough to be involved in the 2009 tour to South Africa, and then stepped up to the role of of planning and running the tour in 2013 to Australia, which to date is the only winning tour in the professional era. We, it was a great, great team effort, and it was fantastic. On the back of that, I set up a business called Ica Performance, as Derek has already uh, touched on, uh, and that's all about leadership, culture, uh, and high-performance development. And I work across numerous sectors, um, 
I'm in about 14, 15 Russell Group universities. Um, I uh, do some corporate work. I do executive coaching in the hospitality sector uh, and uh, amateur clubs. That's probably enough. Sorry I went on. That's uh, it's a hell of a resume, uh, Guido. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we'll, we'll come to Elliot next. Yeah, cheers, Derek. I'm not quite sure I'm supposed to follow that. <laughs> uh, my name's Elliot. I am the head coach of the Amlux Juniors under eight uh, uh, on the island of Anglesey. Uh, that's probably my, my headline role. Uh, I also role, uh, work for the English Institute of Sport, uh, where I work in the performance pathways team, where primarily our role is around talent, identification, development, recruitment. We, we essentially try and equip Olympic and Paralympic sports with the knowledge and leadership structures they need to be able to make sure that we don't just produce great performances at the next Olympic Paralympic Games, that we're also doing what we need to do to make sure that there's a pipeline of well-supported athletes for the ones afterwards. So whilst everyone over the last four years has been quite rightly and understandably getting excited about Tokyo, our team's been focusing on what are the things we need to be doing now to make sure we're in a great place come Paris in, in 2024 and LA in 2028. Um, my background is a psychologist, so um, I'm a sports psychologist mainly. I've done different roles in that, a uh, little bit of research, bit of lecturing, but primarily uh, my role has been on the ground with sports, working with coaches. I did find a way of working that, that seemed to work for us where uh, it was mostly working with coaches to create great environments. Um, and I quickly moved away from being the psych that did the one-to-ones in the in the meeting rooms. And that seemed to have a pretty good effect. And I did that mostly with British canoeing. And then uh, my role now is just to go and be as useful as I can be to all sports that might need to, or might want to explore some aspects of their environment, their development curriculum, or their leadership and culture. Fantastic, thank you very much for that, um, for that, Elliot. And uh, Simon, I'm just gonna invite uh, you in to give a brief introduction as well. Yeah, uh, as Elliot suggested, I, I'm not sure I can uh, stand up to the incredible resume of Guy, but um, I'll, do, I'll do my best. Um, uh, as Derek has suggested, my name's Simon. I'm a university lecturer, um, senior lecturer at Oxford Brooks. Um, and I'm a coaching sociologist by trade. Um, uh, and in terms of what I kind of bring to this space is I completed my PhD via a, a year long ethnographic study kind of five, six years ago now um, with a, a key Olympic sport in this country. Um, so I spent an entire year based at this high performance centre, uh, kind of living and breathing the kind of the coaching context. Um, and I was ch- looking at how the organisational culture of that particular uh, NGB affected the development of professional coaching knowledge. Um, uh, and that was a really interesting, really exciting, uh, I suppose, opportunity. And I, I got to see behind the closed doors and got to sit in, in all those meetings that, you know, retrospectively, perhaps I shouldn't have been. Um, and as a PhD student at the time, that was incredibly fruitful and uh, got me one incredible data, but two really excited about this space. Uh, kind of following that, I've been, I've been really lucky uh, in the sense that I've been surrounded by good academics. Um, and I've been part of lots of large-scale evaluation projects uh, with organisations like kind of the FA and Sport England and, and kind of other bodies like that. Um, and I've done lots of consultancy kind of off the back of that in terms of doing coach development and looking at um, kind of evaluation of coach education pathways and things. Um, it kind of sounds like I liked university so much that I didn't leave, which is kind of true, really, because I, I finished my undergraduate degree and stayed there forever. But um, 
in a former life, I was also uh, a, a very bad international athlete, but I, luckily I was surrounded by lots of good international athletes. So I have a kind of a lived experience of some of the political aspects and the cultural aspects of this space, um, kind of within the context uh, of athletics. And even though I'm Irish and competed, um, as I say, poorly for Ireland, I, I was based in the UK at this time. So kind of lots of my cultural experiences from, is from that setup in this country. Hopefully that'll do. <laughs> No, fantastic. And what I'll do is I'll um I'll I'll refrain from asking the questions that Craig Pickering uh, shared on Twitter to ask you, which uh, to save you embarrassment, uh, Simon, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, what, I said. <laughs> what, what I will do is I'll, I'll invite uh, I'll invite Anna just to just to start uh, kicking us off then with uh, with your first question, Anna, if you would. Yeah, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on Simon because he's the one person I've actually met before, um, so. Uh, without further ado, does sport have a culture problem? Um, this is this is a really interesting and big. It's a big, big question, um, and the the really easy answer is yes and no. Um, and what I mean by that is, I think this goes across lots of different boundaries in terms of performance sport, community sport, grassroots sports. But I think if we think of it in terms of performance sport which probably is what we are thinking of or certainly I am because it's what's been at the forefront of the media recently is that yeah there is certainly a problem in the sense that we've probably been lacking attention and, and kind of a critical eye on I suppose how the aims of what is ultimately a vanity driven activity uh, have kind of aligned with some of the actions taken or kind of the beliefs therein um, and I kind of think potentially historically um, performance sport has been shielded politically from kind of other social rules and kind of social values because it's taken place in this kind of its own private sphere. Um, and that's perhaps why we might be asking some of the questions we are now. So there's some recent work um, uh, done by a friend of mine, Neil Federson, who, who's kind of pointed out or, or found within his study of a, of a national governing body that actually they believe that some of the things we're now talking about or, or now recognising as potentially challenging come from um, <laughs> what might be a bit bit more of an ethically or politically literate society. So we might be asking the questions we historically didn't ask of sport and starting to go, well, are we happy with these sorts of behaviours um, and these sorts of systems for supporting athletes uh, with the intention of getting medals? But I think it's, it's a really tough question. It's a really messy question because I think on last count, an Olympic medal in this country cost about four million pounds per Olympic medal. So it is financially and politically charged. Um, it's also not like other vocations. Um, not many vocations you know, in Olympic sports have a quadrennial funding cycle where you have to fight for your funding. That might be cut, it might be increased. That means coaches lose, lose jobs. It means funding for grassroots sports are affected. It means athletes get taken on and put off world-class performance programs. So it is massively politically charged. So there is that kind of that fight or flight element to it, which doesn't then translate to kind of traditional vocations like teaching or education. So the questions we start asking of performance sport aren't necessarily as easy to answer. Or Sorry, the questions we ask of traditional vocations aren't necessarily as easy to answer. I think there is a problem. I think we do have to start asking ourselves is kind of, is the squeeze worth the juice, so to speak? I think there's a need to perhaps look at what is the intention of performance sport and what are we happy with being done kind of to that to that end um and again i'm, I'm largely talking about broadly the cultural problems that are 
I suppose, some of the, not necessarily the horrendous stories that are coming out, you know, the nth degree of kind of the gymnastic stuff that's coming out at the moment, but because it's quite easy to conflate that. I just mean generally some of the, the unhealthy or perhaps toxic lifestyle choices that we encourage athletes to do. You know, the notion of take one for the team. If it's not hanging off, you can play again, you know. We also have a system where sport is being used, like in a school context, to deliver physical education. And the aims of physical education do not align with, I suppose, the aims and intentions of sport. Sport doesn't necessarily make you physically illiterate. It can, but we might be using the wrong tool for the wrong job. So I think, does sport have a problem or a culture problem? I think it might have a culture problem, um, but that's our fault, because <laughs> I'm not so sure we've been asking the right questions of it. What's really interesting, I'm probably waffling on now, and I'll stop in a second, but is um, this hasn't just happened. This hasn't just happened overnight. We've started asking these questions because of perhaps these like ethical or societal changes or this perhaps more literate society that we've started to, to have. And I, I do think the media are part of it. Um, I wonder if a lot of this is driven by these stories and these incidents are being kind of brought to us um, a lot more frequently. Um, but yeah, I think I'll, I'll kind of check out there and let other people join in. But um, yes, I think there is a problem, but it's largely of our own doing as well. I, I was I was perhaps going to ask um, if people immersed in these cultures, do they know the problems exist? Um, it, it's quite easy for if I if I give the example of of Laurie or myself going in as a coach developer into an environment, there may there may be tensions arise within us when we see things that sit outside our acceptable boundaries and thresholds in terms of where we sit from a from a values perspective. Um, but of course, these people may not necessarily be aware that these problems exist because it, it does fit very much within the acceptable boundaries and thresholds for that sport. It's just simply the way things have always been done here. So that, you know, it's the way that they will always continue to be done. Um, so what 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 uh, what role can we play? What can we do to shine a light on some of these problems for people or sensitize people to these problems? So I, I think I think for me, culture is kind of like. It's a legacy of all that's happened in the past, but it's also the great filter of what happens in the future. Um, and the problem is that when you're in a culture, you're, very, you're, you're in the particular cultural context, or if you're, you're exposed to it or experiencing it or embedded within it, you are in a bit of an echo chamber. Um, so one of the things we can do is, is become more critical of that echo chamber and intentionally step outside of it. Now, that doesn't mean we have to then just adopt someone else's cultural perspective or someone else's behaviors or actions or ideologies, but we have to question our own. Um, the problem is that takes time. It's messy. And as human beings, when someone says, why are you doing that? Generally, we go, well, I, I don't have to answer that or I'm kind of getting on with my own thing or we're kind of inherently quite defensive. Um, so it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. And it's I don't think it's kind of socially something we do in general. Like we surround ourselves with people who reflect our ideology and our ideas and our beliefs because we like those people. And we get on with them. Um, it kind of seems counterintuitive to surround ourselves with people who don't um, or perhaps might challenge us more and more because being challenged is uncomfortable. Yeah, there was a lot of what Simon said that um, reflected a lot of my own thinking. And I, I kind of want to just introduce the term culturally ignorant, which is kind of what I would say in my experience sport has been uh, and has allowed to be. And um, I guess it... A lot of sports that I go into and a lot of programs I go into, they don't they don't know themselves culturally. And and in a lot of cases, they, they don't care to explore or understand themselves culturally. And there's a couple of factors that I recognize that I wonder 
in, in a quite paradoxical sense, whether the culture of sport is the thing that prevents itself from understanding it culturally, <laughs> because it is a performance industry. At, at, at the, in terms of outcomes, you get that kind of unjustified amendments mentality, which means that as long as the output is okay, um, we we don't necessarily need to look at ourselves in in much detail because what we're doing is is moving us forward or, or, or helping us achieve what we want to achieve. Um, it's built primarily on this process of continuous striving, that kind of always wanting to get better. And as Simon said, usually you get a similar type of person get attracted to that type of environment. And the things that you choose or the things that get chosen to be prioritized and valued psychologically in a, in a performance space, like resolve, like resilience, like stubbornness, like confidence in the face of adversity. I think all of those things are at play. And when you take the nature of it, where if you fail, you can change. Um, it doesn't happen as much in Olympic and Paralympic sport, but I certainly see when issues come up, people leave roles. Uh, and then you just assume that the issues get sorted out by bringing in a new person, as opposed to looking deeply at the cultural processes that were at play that led to that person uh, behaving or, or acting or failing in the way that they did. If you succeed, you tend not to ask questions. Um, but either way, the focus is usually on what's next. Um, I've been in environments where we've not really celebrated goals that we've achieved because it's like, right, okay, next game. Or, you know, we've got our next training period um you know i've known coaches to go to massive international events and not even be given a break afterwards they come back and then pd's on them saying right okay how are we going to prepare for the next juniors or next under 23s coming so if you kind of have that constant spinning of, of practice then it doesn't and the fact that it moves at a pace by the way it moves really really quickly often in performance sport you don't create those conditions that are conducive to becoming culturally reflective, culturally aware or enlightened. So I'm kind of not directly answering the question, does culture have, uh, does sport have a culture problem? I just wonder whether the way in which sport chooses to engage or, or not engage with its own culture, that might be the root of a, a potential challenge. Um. First of all, I, I, I applaud the selection of, of this group because we've got a great diverse of people here. And, um, you know, I'm not sitting in the space that is performance sport. Uh, and and isn't, it, isn't it interesting for your listeners for to, to hear the views so far? So my views are going to be slightly different because I'm seeing them from a different lens. You know, I, I, I looked at the, the, the question and the question was, does sport have a cultural problem? Uh, and I took that for all sports you know, generally, both both professional uh, and amateur. And if I if I take my experiences in in rugby, for example, albeit that I'm working alongside soccer teams and I'm on the board of Basketball Scotland and so on and so forth. So I'm doing I see all sorts of sports. But if I if I look at if I look at rugby and um, you know one talks of culture what is culture to me it, 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 culture can be very complicated and not and is often complicated by people. Uh, but ultimately, if you strip it down, it's actually very simple for me, a simpleton, uh, not an academic. And, and it's 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 the way we do things around here. Uh, and, and I and I and I touch and agree with Simon's points about. But of course, what you do around here, it looks into the future and you set your conditions. And and of course, what is so often missed in culture and the power of culture is that, you know, if 
if it's right, when you are um, selecting people, both in business and in sport, to come into your team, it's all very well. And I've had arguments so many years for so long uh, around with HR people around they tick X box, they tick Y box in business, whatever it might be. But ultimately, are they a cultural fit? Because if someone's not a cultural fit, it is going to erode all the good work that has been done to date. So I'm getting slightly sidetracked. So, so just to go back to the rugby piece. So, if 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 one were to take rugby, you know, I, I think I think I don't think you can I don't think you can generalise uh, across the sport that uh, it's got a culture problem, and indeed I don't think you can generalise within a specific sport because, you know, I I, I work as I said earlier I work across uh, numerous sports teams uh, and volunteers in the university sector just to take that as an example, and. Some of the universities have um, within a a specific culture problem within their rugby, but they don't have a problem with with their football. Um, And and interestingly enough, even to drill it down further, some of them have a specific culture problem within their first 15 squad, but their first 15 squad's fine. So I think I think when one is looking as a coach uh, or developer, you know, which is what this podcast is aimed at, I think you know you should always have a holistic approach. And um, ultimately, I think culture is absolutely driven, and I'm going to mention this on a number of occasions, by the personalities and the leadership involved at the time. I mean, I have I have seen some amazing cultures in my time. I've also seen some really bad cultures. And and often, more often than not, it's just come from the poor behaviours of the people at the top. And it's one of these things you've got to keep front of mind day in and day out. So so just to summarise, so my view on this is, and I completely agree with what's been said so far, of course I do, but I, I'm looking through a slightly different lens. And I would say one needs to be careful to generalise. Uh, and that will that'll, that will lead on to further discussions, I think, which I'm going to talk about in due course about, you know, when you where you take your learnings from. I hope that's that's of use. Thanks. I think Anna will appreciate you saying the word learnings and not takeaways, by the way. Uh, you've, uh, you've maybe. No, you've, I don't like learnings either. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Lessons, surely. It's oh. great to have it's great to have views on these things. Lessons. Absolutely. I agree with that. Lessons. Should have said lessons. Um, I was just going to ask uh, Anna if she wanted to come in just with her question that she had from earlier on. About whether you could step outside a culture. Um, that was just because, um, yeah, Simon mentioned it. So um, you, you, when you were talking a little bit about sort of echo chambers and stuff, so is it possible to step outside a culture and look back at it? Definitely not. It's not, 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 I can't take off my cultural hat in the sense that, right, I'm now no longer part of this culture. Um, my kind of, my view of the world isn't, isn't such that you could do that. Um, but what I think we can do is, is start recognising a need to at least try. Um, and support ourselves and individuals who will help us to do that. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think we can achieve that truly and and be genuinely critical of ourselves and of the context we're in because human beings are inherently flawed and we're incredibly invested in the things we do. Um, But we can surround ourselves with systems, networks, support groups who can help us to ask those questions. Um, Me and Elliot, strangely, had a phone call um, 
uh, about two days before Derek invited us on the podcast or two days after. And it was kind of we, we happened to meet up by chance and then we happened to both be on the podcast or invited to the podcast by chance. And we had this kind of notional idea of could we set up this independent body of check and challenge within sport uh, from a cultural perspective to kind of ask these interesting questions, not to basically drive policy or opinion, but to be the the check and challenge and have different stakeholders, not just a bunch of academics, not just a bunch of athletes or coaches, but broad stakeholders, you know, people who pay taxes, people, you know, everyone needs to be involved or, or a representation from everyone. Um, I also said that it was myself and Elliot asking this question, trying to set up this body when we both have inherently no power in this space, but it was just a nice idea. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, can you step outside of your culture? No, but can we, put things in place to help us ask better questions or more critical questions of what we're doing. Yes. Um, but I think we need to create an environment where one, we give people time to do that. And I don't think we always do that, you know, particularly in performance sport or Olympic sport or in academia or any setting where, as we're saying, we're, as Elliot was kind of saying, we're living game to game. Um, next win, next win is always the, is always the option. Um, but yeah, I think I think these are kind of perhaps some of the features of or behaviors we should want to see. And creating this kind of psychologically safe space to ask those questions is key. Now, one thing I'd always ask people is if a football manager came out and said, oh, I got that really wrong. Uh, next year, I think I know what I'm going to do. We get it right. Would that be OK? They'd be absolutely castigated. So we don't have that space where we can always do that. And I think we want to start embedding those values where we can do that. It can be okay to be wrong. Yeah, it's not it's not dissimilar to some of the stuff, uh, certainly recently that I that I uh, looked at through a study of coach burnout and what the role of coach developers are in, in, in supporting the prevention of that. Uh, and there are there's tons of um tons of research out there and um coaches wanting to present themselves as relatively stoic or supermen. Uh, and very rarely ever do they bring themselves to a point of vulnerability where they might say, "Shit, I need help." Um, and and that is probably one of the one of the strongest conditions or factors that um, draws them into or pulls them into that creeping syndrome that is that is burnout. Um, so uh, yeah, I think you're right. A, a sport. I mean, is, is it really sport when you start getting to professional football? You're into the entertainment industry at that point. It's 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 less sport and more entertainment. But would it be so wrong if if people were able to hold their hands up and say, "Shit, I got that wrong"? Um, would would it would it would it enable people to be or feel more connected to that level of sport because suddenly they appear human uh, rather than superhuman? Uh, and is that one of the issues that uh, that exists in our own culture? Is people are just afraid to get it wrong? Could I could I come in if I may uh, on on a couple of points? Um, really really fascinating to hear Simon and 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 I've got a good example of he talked about that 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 nugget that is time in performance sport and of course you know I absolutely experienced that firsthand you know for ten years where everything's rushed and there's no real time for proper reflection and review because uh, and. So two years ago, uh, I, I'm working with uh, with uh, a Premiership football club. Let's just leave it at that. And um, I have a session in the afternoon with the senior players and all the coaching staff. Okay, I go down to England. It's it's right up there. And um, the head coach comes up to me afterwards, and he says, and I'll try and quote this verbatim: "Guy, guy, 
that was really good stuff. I, 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 you know, I buy into all this, but the problem is I haven't got time to do it because if I did that, if I'm not winning and turning this place around in three to four weeks time, I'm out of a job. I mean, that's what he said to me. And that is 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 so much and echoes the, the, the challenges that, that I think performance sport. But again, one needs to be careful looking at the lens I'm looking at through. That is a challenge that some performance sport have, but not necessarily all. You know, I, I, I genuinely worry for rugby because I think the global calendar is just getting out of hand. I think the uh, welfare of players uh, echoed, of course, with recent uh, findings in gymnastics. I think the welfare of players is is secondary, despite what anyone says. At the end of the day, a coach, uh, generally speaking, in my view, from the lens I look at and bearing in mind that, you know, I have been the catalyst and the, the key person who sits alongside coaches. And I've worked with some of the top coaches in the world in my sport. You know, ultimately, they've got to win. You know, and I've seen coaches take some pretty, pretty poor decisions in terms of welfare in order to get the win. Uh, and what's mo- most importantly, uh, other people, chief executives and the like, have sat by and let it happen. And ultimately, the players are the one who's struggling at the end of the day when they when they have an early injury and they're out on their own age 31, having been a professional rugby player for 12 years. Doesn't look good. Um, so, so time thing. I think, I think. He, you know, Simon again talks about you know this the ability or the the, the lack of ability to 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 self reflect. I I I would agree with that in that you if you if you're embedded in that culture in the manner that you should be, it's very difficult to do that. But that's when I plug for someone like me. You know, someone like me who's a consultant. You know, uh, rates are good. Uh, who's a consultant um, who can come in uh, and if they've got a good idea of what of what the landscape looks like they can ask those challenging questions so i do that all the time in sport in business and so much of the overlap there's a considerable overlap uh, in both in both in all sectors when it comes to the, these sort of critical issues but again the selection of that person has to be absolutely spot on they've got to know their stuff and understand the environment in in which they in which they're going to uh, and the final thing I would say is using that using that that outside person, whatever you want to do to, to, to term it as, is having a as, as Simon alluded to that that psychological safe space for people to have a review, probably best led by an independent. Uh, again, you know, this is something that's 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 effectively that I do effectively and I've done with with Derek and and, and the teams he's been involved with, whereby you know you ha- you're asking yourself reflecting and difficult questions and and being pre- and people being prepared to collectively, if necessary, because it's better to say difficult things in numbers as opposed to individuals, uh, to say the difficult things that need to be said, and that of course requires moral courage, which comes back to one of the key transients as I see it of 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 leadership. I hope that's a, a useful view. Thanks, uh, thanks, Guido. And uh, I, I have been in situations in uh, uh, under your guidance and under your support where I've had to have the moral courage to have some of those conversations. But equally, um, was the recipient of some of those conversations when players had the moral courage to do so. Um, so uh, thanks very much for sharing some of that. I, I was just going to ask um, a question just around based on your experiences, Simon. Elliot uh, and Guy, what's it like establishing uh, or working with a culture 
uh, across varying domains. So um, perhaps what's it like working within the military and establishing a culture there for perhaps a tour or, or dare I say the British and Irish Lions tour where you're working together for a period of 14 weeks versus Elliot within the talent pathway where you're trying to work across a system to try and develop uh, a culture or what's it like in professional sport where the culture could change you know twice in one season if a, if a manager gets sacked what are your experiences of that what can you share uh, uh, on that and I suppose the, the subsequent question around that is what role does does the leader play or what role does leadership play in the establishment or maintenance uh, or, or sustainability of such cultures? Um, Guy, I'll come to you first. Thanks, Deke. Um, I think I'll, I think I'll, I'll use the example if I may. Uh, I mean, I think I think the army has a has a has a has has its own. I joined the army as an officer and I joined a, a culture. I joined a culture within a culture. I joined a Scottish infantry regiment. Um, which was highly professional, worked hard, played hard, was open, honest, um, and the jocks spent all their money in the first week they got them, they got their, their monthly pay. Um, officers weren't far behind them, um, and I and I think I think sometimes someone like the military, they there comes a time where they have to shift the culture, and and you know as as a generation comes through. You know, I'll give you a very good example of this. The whole business of, um, and, and absolutely rightly so, the whole business of gay soldiers, you know, uh, wouldn't even been thought of, talked about or anything when I first joined. And I am delighted to tell you that I was part of the process who was driving the change and acceptance of that. And, you know, that required moral courage. And, and to your point of what does a leader have, play role do they play? And that's absolutely critical. Because if I if I'm the if I'm the respected, trusted leader of an organization and I stand up and I I, I endorse what's being what's being suggested, you know, and, and I'm and I'm brutal at coming down on people who don't follow the party line, you know, that's absolutely key. And I and I think for for culture, if you're looking to change and develop a culture, you know, it's got to be with the, the leadership, uh, incumbent of the leadership to take the lead in their behaviours. And it's not just, a, oh, it's that time of the month, oh, it's that time of the year, and we're just going to spend a bit of time on, on, on culture. It's it's every day. It's every day. They've got to sense check themselves every day. Just to take that forward, for, so out of the army, in, in, into the, the Lions tour, you know, and I, rem- I remember, I remember, um, so Ian McGeekin saying on the 2000, ahead of the 2009 Lions tour, he said, do you know what? You just got to remember that every tour is different and every tour has its own culture, which is, which is slightly bizarre if you think about it. Because, you you know, the layman without, you know, criticizing it, we would think, wow, they're just all the same, aren't they? It's all about rugby and it's all about going down and trying to beat the people. And it's not. And it's not because, because of course, what makes a culture uh, is, is the people. And um, and the coaching team and the support staff and, and everything else. And, you know, you are blessed with something like a Lions because, you know, the buy in is easy because everybody wants to be on it. Um, I'll give you, you know, so we 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 created a very so I was involved with two tours. The leadership um, was different on the second tour because on the second tour, we had some big hitters. I mean, we had some big hitters on the first tour. You know, Brian Driscoll was there on the first tour. Um, Paul O'Connor was there on the first first tour. And Sam Warburton was made captain of the 2013 tour. 
and Brian and uh, and Paul were still on it. So we, in essence, we had three people who were pretty much leading it from from a player perspective. And uh, uh, I'm delighted to report we had the occasional jock in there as well. Um, and uh, it wasn't tokenism, but but what they try and do in the uh, the lines, of course, is, is get a leader from from each of the home unions because, of course, that's what it's all about. Um, and those are the people who drove the, the the culture as it was developed. And much of the players didn't like it. Ahead of the tour, you know, I would go around with with uh, with other people to have a gent gentle, quiet talk, chat with Paul, saying, Paul. Like your lump it, you know, unless you get injured, you know, um, you're going to be on the tour and, you know, we're thinking about doing X, Y and Z. And we'd like your thoughts on how you wish to, as a player and your experience, how you wish to to for the players to behave. And, you know, do you want to go down the road of having, you know, strict regulations? And it was very clear. It was very clear from particularly um, Paul and Brian O'Driscoll. That it was it was old 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 school old school and you know people didn't need to be told get in by twelve don't go on the lash ahead of a test match on Saturday because they just understood that was important um, but equally the selection of the group was important so so you can you you as a coach uh, so I've watched this and I think it's worth it's worth I'm sorry for labouring this it's just worth mentioning this I think one of the challenges with the previous some previous tours was that if so. International players want to play international rugby. They then want to become a, a, a lion, and then they want to become a test lion. And of course, you know, as, as, as Derek alluded to, it's you know, 14 weeks or seven, nine weeks long. You know, if you if it becomes clear that you're not going to get into the test side, the danger is if you've selected the wrong people, they will fall off the tracks, go on the lash, and bring other people with them, which makes it harder for the team to stay bonded to to to, to fulfil the, the the win. So what I discovered um, that the selection of players was being done by some of the coaches, whereby they're asking themselves, are they good enough? Yes. Well, I've got an A and a B player here. Which one is more likely to stay on track if they're not selected for the test team? And they would select the person who was likely to stay on track. So I suppose what I'm saying is you can you can create the conditions subtly uh, that will enhance the chances of your culture uh, succeeding. I hope, I hope that makes sense. I could come out with all sorts of names here, but that would be unfair to the players. If I did, if I did, you can't see me, but if I did a sort of diving thing over the line and I had a white jersey on, you might, you might have an idea. That's probably enough of that. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Thanks, Guido. But, but it does raise an interesting point around uh, selection and selection policies being informed by whether or not a, an athlete is a good cultural fit. Yeah, um, and I suppose I might lean on Elliot then um, and bring you in because you're looking broadly over over a talent development system and do some of those things emerge early on and can you intervene so that doesn't become a problem later on when it comes to selection on world-class programs, for example, that that player exhibits the right characteristics, cultural characteristics to ensure they're the right fit. So I might just lean on you to just um, bring in some of your uh, examples or experience of, of, of shaping or developing a culture. Well, I wonder if uh, you might be trying to uh, secretly draw me into this uh, conversation about coachability, because <laughs> uh, that's something I hear all the time. Which, uh, which, um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the bit that I find is uh, not always appreciated as much as it probably could be in the talent pathway is that you do have time. 
and quite often the people the time pressures that people put on themselves um, are usually self-inflicted and they're usually nonsense um, so for example uh, we really need to get this kid uh, in the top 10 by the time they're 16 or they need to medal a junior under 18s and you're like yeah but really um, you know it doesn't make you look like a good coach if that's what you think and <laughs> um, so one of like the part the big bit that we're trying to do is just um, talk about this long game so what is the curriculum experience that you want to try and generate athletes to go through over a prolonged period of time how do you make sure that that is coherent and integrated and you're giving the right dose of the right challenge right experience now that's going to prepare them for experiences later if you take that as your lead thinking then you can start to have some critical conversations around what role might competition play now. Um, so we've just done a review with a sport who had an under nines competition. So at under nines, you could represent GB. And you sort of, so you get a conversation around, well, we've got to break the mentality. We can't lean on the excuse. It's always been done that way. So what, what do we think about the development journey we want people to go on and what role might we play for competition? So I, I find that's the first thing to break. But then you're also wrestling with different motives and different ambitions. I've spoken to athletes that have been quite honest around, do you know what, I want to smash under 18s and then I'm out, I'm going to uni, I want to go live my life. So you might have a coach that you're trying to systemically influence them to say, don't put pressure on kids to succeed early, it's a long game. But that kid might not be in it for the long game. Um, so you're just balancing a whole load of different needs motive behaviors and this is where i think conceptualizing culture is really important getting an idea of what is it you're talking about because i really connect with what what um guido said about how we do things around here and i know that's the way that uk sport have articulated it if you take a bit of a deeper dive into like some of the organizational sports psych stuff the tendency has been to take this integrative lens which essentially means does everybody agree on the same values, on the same behaviours? Does everybody see things the same way? And then you kind of judge culture on, well, it's a good culture if everyone's pointing in the same direction. But then you lose the ambiguity, you lose the conflict, you lose the real background culture that's happening. You can just play to um, that, those espoused values that Henriksen would talk about. And like, I mean, I can name at least five sports where I know if I walk into their building, first thing I'll see is their value statements on the walls. It might mean something, it, it probably don't mean a lot. <laughs> Whereas if you take, so there was this guy in the 60s, uh, Wallace, I think his name was, and he talked about culture as maze ways. And he talked around like how cultures are those patterns of beliefs, behaviours, connections between people, but everyone's got to find their own way around it. So you know, Guido talked about, about, about the army. So you've got the army cultural maze way, but what does that mean for a gay officer? Or what might that mean for a, a female lieutenant? Or So when I look at the talent pathway, I'm trying to understand things from a coach's perspective. How does a coach navigate that? My experiences of working with female coaches is that they have significantly different experiences, uh, have experienced different stresses and have different ways of coping than, than males. Um, you can look at ethnicity, you can look at race, you can look at religion. There's a whole host of things that mean that even though you might have like a real clear integrated culture, as in it all makes sense at the top level, 
people are having to find their own different ways around it. And I think culture is largely connected to ways of coping. So how do you make sense? And then how do you problem solve? Because the way that the culture is set up will present you with different problems and offer you different solutions. And I realise I'm talking quite abstractly now, so I might offer an example that brings this to life. So I'm working with a sport at the moment. The idea has been around curriculum. How do we, how do we, so my role is to support coaches to generate experiences for their young athletes that will best prepare them for the senior programme. And the view is that they will be in the senior programme in around about 12 to 18 months time. But essentially it's moved into a huge bit of culture work because the way that the coaches are operating, the way that they are perceiving performance problems and development problems and the solutions they're using to solve those problems are hugely cultural and probably aren't that well grounded or informed by some, some of the evidence. It's just the way that they've done things around there. So if I went in and said, well, let's assess the culture. How do we do things around here? Everyone's got a clear rationale. Everyone's doing the same thing. It would look great. But behind that, there's a whole load, there's these chasms of uh, difference where it's ambiguous, it's complex. So, um, yeah, we've had to get into some quite difficult conversations around talking to the coach who's been doing this for years. Be like, how well do you understand power? And how well do you understand the power that you have over your athletes and the way that that's shaping their experience? Um, you know, and I'm, I'm really grateful to be working with quite a self-reflective coach, but you know, he's said, well, I've been doing this for 20 years and I've never really thought about that. Um, you know, so what does it mean for you as a coach navigating this? What does this mean for the coaches that work under you? What does it mean for the athletes? Like, this is the bit I love about culture is where you sit and just pay attention to how people operate and what's their sense that they're making of their experience rather than, as I've experienced it and imagine as others have, where you get everyone in a meeting room and say, right, write your top three values down and then we'll tally it up. And then the, <laughs> the ones that are most popular will move, we'll put on the wall and then we'll say, uh, what does that look like when we do that well? What does that look like when we don't do it well? And what are the punishments? Um, so I've waffled on hugely there, Derek, but um, the performance pathway and the talent development pathway is essentially asking sports those questions. Um, how do you connect it and how do you understand what's happening? And it's even more complex because you're going to have to like, if you're trying to shape the development experience of a kid, you're going to have to have some insight into their school experiences and cultures there, the home culture as a way of understanding how they are making sense of what you're doing with them in the sport environment. Uh, uh, Elliot, so much to unpack and unpick in there. Um, I'm going to invite Laurie and just ask a question before we come to Simon, if that's okay. And, and we had a wee giggle at the start when you started talking about curriculum because we we ourselves are starting to initiate that project through a joint colleague of, of ours, Jamie Jamie Taylor, yeah, and we start uh, we start a project of understanding the totality of athlete experience within triathlon, um, uh, Scotland from from October on to try and look at how we might um, better understand it or inform innovations within their within their pathway, but not just looking at the standard, um, you know, uh, what is planned, what is delivered, what's experienced, but we're also trying to understand the hidden curriculum. Uh, as well, so all the social, uh, social cultural norms that exist in and around the sport. So all that is learned by the athlete is an unintended consequence of all that is planned. So I, th I think we share we share that 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 workflow in in Scotland and, and England for sure. And um, Laurie, can I can I bring you in at, at this point to yeah. ask you a question about it? 
Yeah, I, I really like where you ended up there, Elliot, at the end, and just um, acknowledging the complexity of culture, because it is really complex. And I'm aware that quite often in sporting organisations, we hear what seems like really overly simplified versions of culture and, and what it is for them. Do you think that, um, do you think people feel the need to be able to articulate and define um, the culture that they see themselves as a part of? And, and do you think that's why we've perhaps ended up with what is often quite an overly simplified um, idea about what culture is, when, as you've just acknowledged there, it's, it's really complex and multi-layered and, yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Elliot? Well, there's this really interesting human tendency to try and boil complicated things down into things that are simple um, because it helps us cope. And and my experience as a psychologist is that um, whether people realise it or not, whether it's emotional, relational or cognitively, people are struggling. 90% of people are struggling 90% of the time. Like they're struggling to make sense. And the way in which they cope is is what we see. So like to articulate culture, I wonder like even if you could, and it is if, I'm not saying you can't, but even if you could, what would that achieve anyway? Um, what I mean, would you would you be able to tick the box and say, you know, culture completed it? Um, you know, I think it's this continuous cycle of curiosity. Um and you have to catch yourself. So some of the things that I've benefited from most in the sport that I'm working in, so I've never done anything in that sport before. Um, I would never have a hope of doing any of the things these amazing athletes are able to do. But I can sit there and say, isn't it weird that dot, dot, dot? Or why do you do it like this? And some of the fruitful conversations we've had have been stuff that's got nothing to do with the coach. You know, it's like the culture of the sport. So if you take gymnastics, for example, the way in which gymnastics has chosen to conduct itself on a global level is that in women's artistic gymnastics, they have prioritised skills and competencies that lend themselves really, really well to a very young, physically young and physically young looking female body. So, you know, we're the conversations around, well, how do you deal with that? Like, you know, that's the coach hasn't decided that, but that's the context in which they're working in. So you're trying to hit and be successful in a competition where the average age of a successful female might be 16, 17. Like, what does that mean for when you're trying to prepare 11, 12 year olds? You know, all of that stuff. Like, how do you understand that. So I think it's just constantly trying to understand the context that you're working in and then trying to work out right, how am I how am I going to play this now? Rather than, as I've seen it done so many times, is that culture is seen as a KPI or like a, a something you can measure and then manipulate to achieve success. I don't fully buy into that idea. Um, there's that um, I think I tweeted this in relation to this podcast, but John Alder brought me to a, a, an idea before about the fish, the old fish swimming through through the lake, and then the two young ones come up and he says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim off going, what the hell is water? And I kind of think culture is a little bit like that, but I'm a bit of a space geek, so I prefer to kind of analogize it as connected to the ideas of dark energy and dark matter like it, it it's there it's always there and it shapes you in ways and it shapes behavior like this is the thing that 
psychologically makes culture important to pay attention to because it does shape the experiences of people in the space. It will shape their identities and it will shape the skills they develop and the way in which they interact and has huge consequences for well-being. So whilst it's difficult and it's hard to measure and capture, there is a need to do that type of work because it's, it influences the people that we, in a lot of cases, certainly in the talent pathway, have a duty of care and duty for care for. Simon, were you wanted to come in there? Um, yeah, I just, I probably kind of align my thinking with a lot of what Elliot was saying and would kind of jump on kind of bits of it, really. Um, and I, I definitely feel that we've had quite a shallow view of culture for a long time um, because it's so messy and so complex. Uh, and particularly, you know, since 2015, I think, maybe earlier, we've been doing these cultural reviews. When I say we, I say this country or, or kind of this, the organizations within it. Um, and we've done like walk the floors um, where we've gone in and we, we've looked at culture and after three or four days, we've walked out and gone, this is what it is. Um, and I say that as someone who's been on those activities and done some of those for UK Sport or done some for organizations. Um, and I think we have this historically shallow view of what culture is. Um, and like Elliot says, if we're all pointing in the right direction, then we go, good, it's a good culture. But what we're missing, and I think what Elliot was saying was, is this notion of sub subcultures. Um, and that actually, if we look at any sport, if we look at any group, we look at your families and the people who in your families have different viewpoints to you around dinner, around lunch, around what they should be called, around politics, around if you should open a present the night before Christmas or not. We have these subcultures kind of embedded throughout any space we're in. And what we're actually talking about is, and I think this really aligns with sport, and this, this is showing kind of my cultural background with the types of people I came across with athletics is, we should probably be adopting a bit more of a fragmentation sort of view of culture um, that we have different individuals or different groups or different subcultures in the group within an area that their views are quite fluid and flexible. And I think if any of us think about sport or the context of coaching or anything, it is a fluid space, you know, depending on competitions and Olympic cycles, whether it's the Lions tour or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't actually know. I say maybe I do know, but I don't necessarily think that we support people in being able to navigate this context. Any coaching course doesn't go also be mindful that culture is this and that it changes and that socially you need to be able to make sense of an individual's feelings on this day. On a, on a cultural viewpoint when you go and coach in the north versus the south versus in Ireland, in Scotland, whatever. Um, I don't think we do that and we don't do it for a good reason. It's really tough. Um, and I'm not throwing stones at UK sport I, because they need to be able to put a line on a piece of paper to go, yeah, the culture is X, Y, and Z, or, or largely the dominant viewpoint is this, this, and this. Why? Because there's so much money involved, because it's such a big thing. We reduce things down for a reason, because we need to manage and provide structure. That doesn't make it good, and that doesn't make it okay, but it's a rationale behind why we do it. And what we need to start doing is is the messy work, which is trying to make sense of the culture and the subcultures within. Um, something Guy said earlier was around leadership and, and the, the key role, leadership and, and kind of those, those kind of significant gatekeepers individuals have in, in driving culture. And I agree, I agree with that. But I also highlight the danger, I would highlight the danger in 
this shining kind of individual who has such a significant feature or role within that culture. Because I think particularly in sport and organizational culture research, I think Maitland did a big review. And we, we often like to look at culture as static, but the problem is we can't complete culture because things change, as we've just said. But if we if we recognize the importance of that leadership role, it's quite just easy to look at that leader and look at their interaction with the organizations and the individuals around them. Um, during some of my PhD data collection, um, I walked in and this 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 incredibly charismatic individual told me that they were going to have this massive pedagogical shift. And he used the word pedagogical. And I was like, this is brilliant already. Um, and we're going to create a community of coaches where it doesn't matter who gets the medal, but if you had a hand in the relationships with that athletes and the support networks that end up in getting the medal, we've been a success. I thought, brilliant, we're about to show that communities of practice exist and are functional. Um, and that not, that's not necessarily what I experienced. Now, it was a very successful organization. They did really well. They met their medal targets. But the coaches did not work together and did not necessarily like each other in certain areas. Um, and, and I just think it, it, it's, it means that we have to start I suppose asking these these different questions and I kind of I keep coming back to this notion of asking questions and that's the problem I think that's one of the reasons we don't see lots of sociologists in high performance sport or in national governing bodies or in kind of different areas because they're just that person asking questions they're not necessarily ticking boxes it's quite hard to articulate that complex messy view of culture that complex messy view of why I'm asking those questions but I feel like we all kind of inherently know there is value in doing it it just takes place in a context where sometimes we're time poor, sometimes we're politically charged, sometimes, you know, we're very outcome focused. And we recognize that all those things are things that have to happen. But it doesn't mean we should stop asking the questions and stop being critical. Yeah, I'm going to jump in here. <laughs> I, I have to be careful. So I was on the edge of my seat when you were speaking there, Simon. There was so much you were saying that was uh, speaking to a lot of the feelings that I have around this. So I have one question, but before that, you've mentioned a few times now that you feel there are questions that we should be asking. And I wonder if even a precursor of that is, is, is there a group of people that we need to be supporting and training up to, to do this culture analysis, analysis um, and, and ask these questions? Um, but, but going back to your earlier point, I do notice that a lot of the leadership theories that are gaining traction within sport um, focus on the qualities of leaders as individuals, as opposed to it being a group endeavor and, you know, between leaders and followers. And, you know, sport, I think, inherently uh, encourages idolizing behavior. And, and my, my question is, with these leadership theories that focus on leaders as individuals, are we at risk within performance sport of these people being having too much influence and being idolized and perhaps leading to some of the problems that we that we're currently facing in sport that was a multi-layered question <laughs> but please go go for it if you can answer it in some way do you want me to jump in yeah, so I think um, one of those things around that kind of significant individual is, yeah, we can kind of idolize them and put them on this pedestal. Um, and sometimes we do that for good reason. Um, but necessarily being successful in one context doesn't mean you'll be successful in another or indeed in that context the next year. Because, as we know, the world changes, intentions change, language changes. Um, I think language is a really interesting one because... Um, I knew I was going to forget something from that last story I was telling, and this is it. It's the notion that they wrote this kind of language statement around what they wanted to achieve, um, and then 
that was written into these coaches' contracts and they signed these contracts. And everyone walked away going, brilliant. They've signed contracts saying they're going to work with X, Y, and Z. And how well they do with Tom, Dick, and Harry judges or, or kind of has an output on their so's performance, you know, for the PDR or whatever. Um, and then none of it came to fruition. And if someone got a medal, you kept your job. If you didn't, then that had an impact, I suppose, on how your performance was perceived. Um, and a lot of that was basically this notion of kind of a leadership vacuum or a perceived leadership vacuum from coaches or from people on the, on the floor. And it's actually really interesting. Language and intention and meaning was reconstructed at multiple levels throughout this organization. So at no point did this, this kind of ethereal PD come back and go, I'm saying these things and it, to me they mean this. What do you think? What does that mean to you? And then that middle manager didn't then go down to the coaches and go, what do you think? We just had reconstruction, various levels. And actually, you have Chinese whispers all the way down to what is actually important. So I had coaches saying to me, yeah, but as long as this person throws this far, you know, I'll keep my job. When actually that's not the intention of the PD. Yes, they do keep their job because the historical nature of that context of Olympic sport is very hard to fire someone whose athletes done really well or to reprimand them or to have that difficult conversation around, well, you're not actually functioning well with, with kind of a, a broader group. Um, and in terms of who we should support, good, I remembered your next part of the question. Um, we need to support coaches. We need to support uh, the hops roles. We need to support PDs um, in being able to, one, recognize perhaps their limitations in terms of how how good they can be as cultural architects, which is a term lots of people don't like, but I quite like it, um, in terms of people who kind of shape the ecology of the space they're in. And, and you know, we are just people, actors who, who act in this space. Um, I think we need to inform everybody that the world is inherently social because we like to forget that. Um, and we're all just human beings talking to and interacting with other human beings and everyone has feelings and they can all be hurt but we don't always prepare people for that. Um, we can be talking about medicine, education, politics, whatever. The content doesn't necessarily matter. Um, it's the, the social relations that are important and are really complex. And they're the bits I think we come unstuck at quite often. <clears throat> We've probably moved on a little bit, but but just, just listening to Simon there, you know, I was just writing a few things down, you know, from a guy who, who set up and, uh, and is now running a business, you know, the culture is, 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 it's not that different to running a business, really. You know, um, it's multi-layered, it's alive and fluid, and you've got to you've got to constantly navigate the changing environment from which you exist. And you know, if if it's like it's like this whole piece around COVID. You know, if if you and if you think that you know what you did six months ago is going to work, what going forward, and you stay on the same path, you're going to fall over. And I think the same the same applies to culture. Uh, if that you're thinking that the, the static culture that you know we've got this and we we organised we agreed this two years ago, and it's the same today because it isn't. It slightly changes. I'm doing a bit of work around in a business at the moment. I'm doing a bit of work around. Um, we've we've got their values, and of course, it's all very well having values. But first and foremost, what do they actually mean to the individuals and the business? What do they actually mean? And how do, how do they convert into behaviors? Uh, that's, that's the key, isn't it? How, does it? how do they keep it alive? And, and what's interesting to talking when we were talking about, we were touching on this earlier, is that the behavior, because, because this business is split between Glasgow and Edinburgh, uh, you know, what happens in Glasgow in terms of behaviors is going to be very different 
to what happens in Edinburgh. Why? Because they're very different types of people who come from there. It's a it's a it's a front facing members business. How they deal with the members in Glasgow is going to be different in Edinburgh. Um, I know that having having lived in Glasgow for six weeks in the Commonwealth Games, and they're just different people than they're through in the East. Um, so I think this it's very complex, and the lens I see it as is, and I I you know. I just think it's a very fluid thing, and if you if you if you're firm and fixed in it, um, it's going to fall over. But I also echo the whole importance of the uh, of the ambassador, um, whatever you want to call it, that person who's going to uh, you know keep it front of mind and help help drive it forward. Drive is probably the wrong word because you don't want to be aggressively driving it. Develop it going forward, I suppose, is a more softer word. Yeah, I think back to uh, the experiences we had, uh, Guido, and we we were calling them the custodians of of the culture uh, yeah. to, to to keep it alive. So less less hard, a, a bit softer, and uh, a, a, and gave the the position uh, the credence uh, it deserved because it is an important job to try and uh, hold people to account to uh, to a vision or a mission or the values uh, mm. and ensure the behaviours that um, that we see or, or um, articulate are the ones that we uh, exhibit uh, in everything yeah. that, that, that we do because you know we talked about it at, at Aki's you don't you don't go out the gates and stop being an Aki you're an Aki in every in every aspect of, of your life and I think it's important that you bring some of that some of that with you uh, and just reflecting back on uh, on sort of what Simon was talking about around fragmented cultures and I think that the skill of a coach is to understand the space between the subcultures within uh, the organisation or the team that you're that you're working with. I think back to the rugby example. Um, be that the Lions or, or working with a team uh, down the road, uh, the the guys that make the first fifteen will have a subculture of their own week to week, uh, as will the guys in the subs bench, mm-hmm. as will the guys that are not selected. Um, and the the skill of the coach is to being able to uh, navigate the the relationships and the complexity of those relationships, yeah. so that those those fragments of those pieces can still operate uh, coherently uh, because they're all still working towards the same goal over the course of a season which is to be successful um so yeah that, that, that's my notion the other the other thing i think going back to one of your previous colleagues guy of when you talk about what works in one context may not work in another and you think of uh, warren gatland and how successful he was at wales and the lions and he goes home and he's not very successful with a club team yeah. Um, so there, there, and you I mean you describe him as probably one of the best coaches, if not the best coach you've ever worked in around. So why does what works with the Lions and and with with Wales not work with Wakato, for example? Do you know what? The, just a quick one on, on on Warren. Why do I think Warren was very successful? Was because he really understood his players. You know, and he was very empathetic to them. And on, on a number of occasions, I recall him taking a player aside because he had his spies out there, you know, reporting back in a very positive way. And if he picked up that player X's mother-in-law wasn't well, he'd quietly slide up to player X and say, listen, gather things are not well at home. No problems. Off you go. You know, don't worry about it. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure make sure it's all sorted. because Because he knows that the player is going to come back and deliver up here you know he doesn't have to worry about the player you know keeping fit and all the rest of it because he knows he's going to come in on fire here uh, and it's it's a it's a it's a reputation that gets gets built on that and of course he knows his stuff but i saw that one that uh, of all things stood out for me from his from his from his leadership i'm just going to give a quick plug here if i may 
and I know we're winding this one up. There's a very good book by a guy called Nigel Travis. Now, Nigel Travis runs, he's a very successful business guy, and he runs a he runs a thing called Dunkin' Donuts, which is the, one of the biggest, you know, stuff your face with sugar in, in the United uh, States. And he used to, he, I think he's still the chairman of uh, Leighton Orient Football Club. Anyway, it's called, the, it's called the, the Challenge Culture, and it's about how he's created an environment for psychological safety where he, he allows and creates platforms for all levels of management, leadership uh, to sit and challenge each other. So the person who's in charge of marketing might have a meeting with with their team and they might have a meeting with someone from the communications, but someone from the communications might have a really good idea and they're not a marketeer. Um, and the whole idea is they create this platform. Well, that, it's very comfortable for that person to come up with uh, that good idea or indeed challenge the head of marketing because they think actually the knock-on effect might be too great in their department. Uh, and of course, that this sort of culture takes a long time to build, of which he talks about in his book, but he's found it very effective. I think there's probably a bit of a hybrid model there, but I found it a fascinating read and some of your listeners or indeed the panel might might find it interesting. Yeah, I just wanted to offer a perspective on, on the leadership thing because um, certainly in the world that I operate in, I find that... Um, leadership is often conflated with management and and people probably pay too greater attention to the word manager in their title as opposed to the opportunity for the leader and just as a, a subtle point uh, part of my role in the team is to work with the pathway managers for each olympic and paralympic sports and over the last few months i've subtly stopped referring to them as pathway managers and more started to refer to them as pathway leaders and for, interestingly, for a few people that have picked up on that, that's proved quite uncomfortable for them. They've said, well, why are you, I don't actually think I'm a leader. Like, uh, And that's been a fruitful conversation. Mm. And we got into like the importance of influence and power. Whereas um, when you manage, and, and, and when you take a cultural perspective on this, it could turn into an exercise of behavior management. It could turn into an exercise of reward, punishment, um, in whichever guise they, they take shape. But essentially, you pay attention to culture because you're paying attention to the behaviours and, and you can exercise a judgment whether they're right or wrong. Whereas if you take more of a, an influence or an even inspiration point of view um, and to, to play on Simon's word, cultural architects, you have the opportunity to influence people directly or indirectly. So if you take a pathway leader, they may choose to shape the culture of their pathway by how they choose to word and operationalize the selection policy. They may do that by getting on the pitch, on the court, in the gym, next to their staff and understanding their experience. They may do that in meeting rooms where they're pulling people up for things they've done well or not so well. You always have a choice. And it, the bit that we haven't talked about, which I think is quite important, which I wanted to bring in was this idea of professional judgment and decision-making on behalf of the leader. How does the leader be aware of culture and how things are playing out at the moment the, the the vibe in the group finger on your pulse however however you want to word it and then sit back and make decisions on what might be the most useful action next so it may be i've noticed players a b c and d working in this way i've got a choice to grab a coffee i've got a choice to speak to the manager 
I've got a choice to send out a big lengthy email reminding people of our values. Like it's that bit that I think um, is inherent in leadership that we could and should prepare the managers and also the coaches to better recognize and deal with. Because I think that would probably be the biggest influence if you had people who so on our leadership course last year, we had a session on ethnography and anthropology and it blew people's mind because they were like, mate, I do emails and Excel documents. What are you talking to me about this for? We're like, no, you've got to get get your hands dirty, get on the ground, talk to your coaches, talk to your athletes, find out what's going on. Use these ethnography skills to make sense of that. And then either you or someone else or something needs to support that coach to make sense of what's happening and equip them to manage that more locally. And um, that's the exciting opportunity, I think, that sits with coach developers to be able to play that role for coaches um, and depending on where they sit in their respective systems, play upwards into PDs and other managers to be like, this is how we're making sense of what's going on. If we want this group to excel and develop, it might not be me running a workshop on constraints-based learning and doing reflective sessions with the coaches. It might be having conversations around some of these social cultural aspects um, that just allow, uh, so the phrase we used to use in canoeing was uh, getting rid of the noise. So quite often the stuff that got in the way of learning and people just getting their heads down and working hard was a whole load of social, emotional, relational, psychological stuff. Now I could treat that by running one-to-one -one sessions. I could treat that by doing team sessions on culture. But the real value was sitting with the coaches, helping them recognize how their behaviors and the way that we'd set things up was contributing to that. And if you tweaked A, B, and C, we can reduce the noise and get back down to work. So um, exciting opportunities, I think, for coach developers to embrace this type of support for coaches. Uh, amazing, Elliot. And I think um, I think where where my head started to go to on that is if we conceptualise leadership as a behaviour or a set of behaviours, and we should be supporting um, behavioural dexterity, right? Because again, um, one leadership behaviour that works for athlete A doesn't necessarily work for athlete B, or it might work one week but not necessarily the next week. And I think it's around, um, I think Dave might call it auditing those experiences to ensure that you are um, building um, um, uh, representations of what might work best where uh, and, and, and when uh, moving forward, I think is, is, is crucially important. And the role of the coach developer in supporting those reflections uh, of those experiences that the coach had, and they might not necessarily be conscious or aware of what has happened, but shining a light in that enables them to either uh, add that to their, to their armory and dial it up or dial it down uh, relative to to uh, whether or not they face the same situation again uh, in the future. Does that does that make sense? Is that what I'm is that what I'm hearing of you? Yeah, yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Guido, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you in, mate. I I, I can't not bring you in. Thanks. I just want a, a final final point. Um, I came across a really good comment the other day, which I've stolen and I claim it as mine, but it's not. And it's called leadership signature. I use it all the time. And it's a really great way of describing leader, leader, leadership, leadership signature. Because what, what it's saying is like, like a written signature, and we all write our signature still, maybe not in the future. But every single signature that is written in the world by the billions of people who write them is different. And every single leader out there is different.
And what, what coaches as leaders uh, have to do is to identify and through a bit of self-reflection, their strengths and weaknesses, and what is their leadership signature? What does it look like? You know, and, and of course, the way to do it is to constantly live your life with your with your antenna up, because we're, you know, when we're not locked in our houses, we are we are blessed when we walk to the shops and we go and get something from Costco, whatever it is. We see good and bad leadership all the time, don't we? You know, somebody shouting at X behind them, where you know, just you know, calling them to count in front of everybody, you know. And you can, you can, you can, you can learn by bad leadership as much as you can learn by good leadership. And I want to finish on a quote which I've got here, and it's a military quote, and it's from a general who was in the Korean War. My dad was in the Korean War uh, back in 1967. And it says this, and I think it's very pertinent to, to everything. It says, military chap, uh, one of my cardinal rules of battle leadership or leadership in any field is to be yourself, to strive to apply the basic principles of the art of war and to seek to accomplish your assigned missions by your own methods in your own way. You know, and I, and I think too often it falls over because people try and take something and try and make it their own and their DNA doesn't allow for that and they become somebody they're not because people spot people very quickly do they not if if you're trying to be somebody else eventually you get caught out so that's my final piece of that's of any help yeah that's uh, that's a great note to finish uh, uh, this recording on um, re remind me did, did that quote come from a book that I bought as uh, after I listened to one of your podcasts that you were on Guido was it a warrior's word Yes, I've got uh, I've got this book. I had to I had to in, I had to import it from America because it's very hard to find. Um, but what a gift that that you've just offered us with that with that quote, Guido. Thank you very much. Now, uh, as you start a new endeavor, something like like a new podcast, you have this idea in your mind of how it's going to go, uh, and it's surpassed our expectations on everything, barring keeping to time. Um, so we had. We had a we had a final a final question that we were going to ask, uh, which we will still ask um, around who do you think uh, coaches uh, and developers thereof can learn the most from in the areas of leadership and culture and why? Now we're going to make this a quick fire. You've got one minute to respond, Guido. That's going to be hard for you, mate. But one minute to respond, and we'll go to Elliot first. If I'm honest, the, the most value they can get is by learning from themselves and learning from their people. If you pay attention to those things, then that puts you in a good position, I think, um, because everything is so contextual and so unique. You're on a potentially slippy slope if you start paying too much attention to other people. Um, so, yeah, yourself and others in your tribe. Elliot may have jumped on what I was kind of going to say, which is an easy cop out, but I would have said um, everyone uh, and other cultures. I think if we want culturally savvy individuals, culturally savvy organizations, um, then we need to go out and try and make sense of those cultures. So if the organizations and the systems around us aren't going to or are not ready to support us in doing that, then it is our responsibility as people who give a crap about this stuff to do it if you want to be a good coach i don't think anyone wants to be a bad coach you want to be a good academic a good leader a good team player um and you want to be able to make sense of your own culture and, uh, and how that changes then we should be going out and experiencing it go and talk to the people you wouldn't normally talk to go and 
watch rugby, athletics, football, rowing, medicine, lawyers, everything. Go and try and experience their culture and, and try to make sense of the, the facets of it that are different and unique. Awesome. Thank you. We're, we're hoping that, uh, that Guido blows this one out of the park. No, I, 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 I think the key, I completely endorse that. And I think open mindset. You've got to approach these things with an open mindset and uh, multi-disciplines, multi-sectors and listen to what and listen, listen, listen to what uh, and look to what they're doing. Gregor Townsend is a, is a great is a great uh, advocate of this. And, um, you know, if he was on the call, he'd be saying, you know, for those of you who don't know, he's the current um team uh, head coach for Scotland and um, you know he spends a lot of his time going across the world uh, to multi-sports and businesses to learn um, and I know he does that because I see a lot of his stuff and it's good stuff and he's always seeing that as, as an important part of his uh, of CPD. Uh, and I suppose on a, on a local level for the coaches who might listen to this who don't have the same profile and resources that Gregor may have we all have connections and our connections equals currency. Yeah, and it's about untapping that uh, currency to try and perhaps learn from uh, uh, environments or businesses that, that friends or connections uh, work in. So we don't necessarily need to travel the world, but these, these opportunities are, are perhaps all around us. Yeah. Thank you very much. Laurie, uh, Anna, I'm going to invite you guys in if you've got any closing thoughts before we, we, we wrap this up. Uh, loads of thoughts, so I'm looking forward to sharing them over a couple of beers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a huge thank you to the three of you for your time. It was so fascinating to listen. Oh, for sure. Uh, I think from, from my perspective, uh, as a first episode, um, Jesus, that, that was that was quality. Um, we're really excited about uh, getting this out uh, and sharing some of your stories, uh, your experiences and your anecdotes. Uh, with the listener or listeners that might be out there uh, for this podcast so it just leaves me to to thank you guys uh, very very much um and uh, anna and uh, laurie i am excited to get a couple of craft beers uh, down my neck to try and uh, digest uh, the past the past hour and a half's worth of recording so thank you guys uh, very much wow that was a uh... That was an absolute blast to record and I'm sorry that uh, we couldn't share some of the lighter moments uh, we had as a group in, in building rapport and enjoying a debrief uh, with you. Uh, Guido, Simon and Elliot gave us a lot of food for thought and I know that Anna, Laurie and myself are excited to spend some time over a craft beer or two as we uh, explore or make sense of what was said as part of our two beer minimum segment for the show. While we initially planned to integrate the two-beer minimum into this episode, we felt that editing too much out wouldn't do the guests or the contributions any justice. Now we're therefore splitting the two-beer minimum into part two uh, of this episode and fast-tracking the current recording uh, to you. Now we're keen to encourage listener participation and would like to invite one or two of you on to the two-beer minimum between now and the 2nd of October to help us make sense. If this is of interest to you uh, and you would like to join us, then we would encourage you to DM us on Twitter at Coach Discourse and we can try and make something happen. We hope you enjoyed this episode and if you have, please subscribe and rate us and if you have time, please leave us a review. It would of course mean a lot to us as we continue to find our way in the world of podcasting.
Thank you.